Welcome to the Critical Witness podcast, where we talk faith, apologetics, evangelism, and anything else we can think of. We hope you enjoy the show. Uh, welcome to Critical Witness. I've got uh, Dan here, as usual, and we're joined by another Glenn. If you've watched our last uh, episode, we've now got um, Glenn Peoples with us, Dr. Glenn Peoples with us, and uh, we're going to be talking about all sorts of different things today. I've titled the video Morality, Psychology, and God, but this could go anywhere, and we'll see how long we last this time. We lasted two hours with uh, Glenn before. How long are we thinking, Glenn? I see. You know, we'll, we'll, um, we'll see go for an hour. We'll go for an hour, and then we'll see what happens. <laughs> Sounds good. Yeah, we'll we'll, uh, we'll start 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 off gently. Um, so, just so everyone knows who uh, you are, um, you've got your website rightreason.org, and you've written about all sorts of different topics, and uh, lots of them are interesting. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, some of them <laughs> all the ones i've read so far have have held my attention um why don't you tell us a, a little bit about yourself and um yeah a little bit of your story when you become a christian and why do you write articles about faith mm, mm. i mean i'm no one really <laughs> um but so um i became a christian you know I grew up in the Catholic faith, so you know it, it was always uh, an important component of, of my life and my family life. Um, like a lot of people who are now not Catholic but who are still Christian, I did this whole finding out about about Catholicism, and, and I got uh, to, to the to the shock of some people rebaptized in my teens. Um, and you know, like a lot of people who leave the Catholic Church but remain Christians, I initially was very hostile to it. <laughs> um, I've, I've mellowed a lot since then. I'm Anglican now, so that should give you some uh, some indicator. You know, some people say, "Oh, you've come halfway back home." And I'm not quite, but yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I got into Christian academia, kind of, um, many many years ago when I when I, when I decided, "Oh, maybe I'll be a pastor." And so I went off to Bible college and did my undergraduate degree in divinity. And then I sort of caught the academic bug and decided, oh, maybe I won't be a pastor. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll, I'll teach, you know, I'll be a lecturer. So I went and did a couple of other degrees to get a master's degree in theology, a PhD in philosophy, all the most useful degrees in the world. Um, and, you know, I realized like a lot of people that academia, well, that kind of academia in, the, in theology and philosophy, you know, you can't just, around just jobs everywhere <laughs> it's not really a, 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 a I mean it's beneficial for a lot of other fields but I ended up basically accepting that that uh, professional academia in those fields was very unlikely and so I you know, entered the corporate world and started gaining a whole bunch of other skill sets and whatnot but more recently I I'm definitely heading towards something a bit more vocational um, something pastoral of but I, I know not what at this point, 
and that's partly because of the church environment that I'm in, namely the Anglican one is so uh, uncertain. Uh, there's a lot going on uh, in terms of change. Uh, you know, the, the old Anglican guard is, is, is incredibly liberal and not really an environment that is conducive to intellectually vibrant evangelical faith. But there are also some uh, important revival movements going on within Anglicanism. And I think of GAFCON, for those who are familiar with it, mm-hmm. which is really quite encouraging. So we'll see what happens there. But uh, one of the things that I've decided that is that if I'm going to be going into any sort of pastoral ministry, it would be really beneficial uh, to have a background in, in, in psychology. Mm. That, and that was, was prompted also by, by my relationships with a number of people in my life for whom psychology is a big issue. And so that's what I'm doing now. I mean, I'm still working full time. I'm, I'm an application support analyst for the government uh, in, in my day job. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm um, studying towards a psychology degree, well, the undergraduate one anyway, and there'll probably be another degree after that. So <laughs> I'm a student again. And, you know, uh, I stay sane by building guitars. Which you're very good at. I mean, I don't make guitars, impressed. but they always look very, very impressive. They I do look say. nice, yes. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> I would have one just to put on the wall. I wouldn't be able to do anything with it, but my, my brother's might. It's ornament. <laughs> <laughs> so um, you're now doing psychology and looking mm. to do pastoral uh, sort of thing. So this psychology degree that you're in, how long is it going to last for? Are you going straight into master? Well, so, so I'm doing it part time, and I started at the beginning of last year. It's full time. It's it's three years for the for the undergrad degree. It's a Bachelor of Applied Science in Psychology. Uh, it'll altogether it'll be about four and a half years to do this degree for me. But then, if you're going to be a psychologist, a bachelor's degree is not enough. You then have to complete a master's and then some supervision. So you know, I'm. It's fairly long term at this point. I'm looking at at least eight years. Sounds fun. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm not sure eight years. I, I'm, uh, psychology, I enjoyed uh, listening to my wife uh, and, and what she did in, as an undergrad um, and Dan's wife also. Uh, that's kind of how we met through our pr- prospective wives um, and mm. uh they both did psychology. So I, I've got a, a little flavor of what psychology looks like, but my understanding of it is minimal. Um, with Christianity, and I'm guessing you're doing this through a, a secular university. That's right, yeah. The Open Polytechnic of New Zealand. Right. Uh, and where, where do you see the overlap? Are you, are you going towards counseling with psychology, talking about pastoral Care or? Um, yeah, so I'm not, not looking at being something that you'd call a counsellor, although there'll be counselling involved. Mm. I'm, it, it, I mean, there are a number of options in, 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 in the field, but I think, I'm thinking something along the lines of clinical psychology. Mm. That's fair enough, yeah. And are, are there any sort of pet subjects within psychology that you you see clashing with christianity that have already kind of bubbled to the surface that you go well I'm not sure that i mean psycholo- psychology is, it's like it's like um is there is there a problem in science you know if you're going to be a christian will, will that clash with science well mm-hmm. well psychology doesn't have opinions of course it's it's course. Uh, it's just a field of study but yeah there are certain orthodoxies that i think are both harmful and 
and incompatible with, with I think, any sort of robust Christian worldview, especially around, at the moment anyway, the, the, the whole field of, of both sexuality and gender identity. Uh, now, um, you know, it's not as bad as, as, well, it doesn't seem so far to be as bad as, as some alarmists might think. There is room for, for, for disagreement on, on the nature of gender identity and the appropriateness of gender as the distinguisher between men and women, for example. Mm. Um, but so it's, it's not really in the academy that you're going to face opposition because you can ask almost any question. It's in, it's in the culture. Uh, you know, if you say the wrong thing on Twitter and anyone knows who you are, you can you know, lose your job and be hounded and receive threats and all sorts of things like that. That, I think, really is where uh, the danger is. Have you read the, um, the article by J.K. Rowling? Uh, I haven't, although I was surprised that it was only making news now. Um, I mean, I've, I follow a lot of people who uh, would describe themselves as gender-critical feminists on, on Twitter because I disagree with them about lots of things, but we, we have considerable overlap uh, in, in what we would say about gender. And J.K. Rowling made her comments a long time ago, and the, the furor has been bubbling ever since. It's just recently that she's decided to, to explain herself more fully to I don't know whether I don't know whether she thinks she's going to placate anyone because she's seen the sorts of people who who are concerned about what she said and they're not going to be placated. No, no, yeah, she seems to have sort of thrown caution to the wind the last uh, yeah, last week or two, um, yeah, and, and that's yeah. um, it's interesting. It's so great that there are people. Well, so far anyway, one person who can afford to throw caution to the wind because she's yeah. J.K. Rowling, mm-hmm. and and who have decided to use their voice in such a good way. Yeah. Well, she's she's um, me and my wife were talking about this yesterday. Is she's she's untouchable in a way. Is uh, you know once you get to those sort of echelons of um, you know you, you're not dependent on anyone. She doesn't need anyone. She doesn't need money. She doesn't need fame. She's you know if that's what she was she was after. So she's she's kind of free. She has a freedom that a lot of people don't have. Like I, I would say, I don't. I would, you know, most of us don't have that degree of freedom because our speech is always somewhat reined in by, you know, fear of, uh, you know, of, of loss of something that we would, wouldn't want to lose. Mm. Um, so it's quite, you know, we almost rely on people who are untouchable in a way to say the things that probably a substantial proportion of the population are mm. thinking, but either are too scared or are not free to communicate those ideas. And that's what's so interesting about J.K. Rowling, as you were saying, is, um, you know, I probably wouldn't agree with her on a lot of things, but probably on the gender critical stance, I probably would, mm. would err to that. And, I, you know, I, I, would, I don't feel like I have the, the freedom necessary to, to voice those things, but she can, and I can sort of, you know, share a post, you know. Uh, in a... Yeah, so this is, I don't want to call it a mistake, because it's, it's, a, it's the way that I would have, wanted to conduct myself but this is a mistake some would say that i made as soon as i started blogging i i just said what i thought was true <laughs> yeah but it's done it's, it hasn't cost i don't know maybe it's done i don't know but uh, yeah it, it probably has cost, cost you i don't know I, I suspect it has cost me i've never held an academic post <laughs> right right yeah. is there anything specific that you think would have done that well, I mean, in the in the conservative evangelical world, there are a few doctrines that I both hold and defend, which would immediately 
uh, have me booted out. So, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a dualist about human nature. That's a big deal. I'm an annihilationist. Well, that's, mm. that's huge. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, 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 you, and, you know, they're, they're every bit as, as sensorial and prohibitive when it, uh, as, as the woke mob. It's just that there are different shibboleths. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and hell is definitely one of the sort of untouchable doctrines at the moment, as uh, we've talked about elsewhere. But that might well come up a little bit more in the the conversation. I mean, just with J.K. Rowling and being untouchable, do you think that's actually true? Do you reckon there's a danger that if one person in her position speaks out without the support of academia, or though she's used academic sides to it to speak out, there's potentially a danger that she just becomes called the the wacky person with money um that we can ignore that's absolutely a risk but but what does she care it's not gonna (laughs) you know she's she she invented harry potter she's a millionaire (laughs) (laughs) maybe not for her to care i mean just uh, those of us who may be watching this from the side thinking oh great someone has spoken that has the power to Mm. is is it worth more is it a time for more people to actually Speak oh, of course it's always a time for people to speak and to, and to have courage and to you know because this is why this is how the mob becomes the mob mm-hmm. it's yeah it's because it is allowed to become the prevailing culture which isn't challenged uh we've just had some feedback that the feed is having dif- difficulty let us know in the um live chat if you can hear us okay is it uh i can hear it fine when i test it out um We'll just keep going and we'll see what happens. Hopefully um, between Zoom and YouTube, they'll sort it out. Um, Dan, if you keep talking with, with Glenn for a minute, I'll see if there's a technical thing I can I can fix. Yeah, no, I think even if, if you look at the, um, the amount of support that someone like J.K. Rowling's got for her, um, you know, bringing her sort of perspective, I would say it vastly outweighs criticism. But I think the thing about the criticism is it's, it's much louder. So you end up with a very warped view of what the majority of people hold. And I often think that, that you know, there are, these are, you know, incredibly minority, uh, these views are a minority, but the people that hold them shout so loud that you end up perceiving that yeah. they're the ones in the majority. Yeah, and the, the nature of the activism is so very different. You can troll through a very unpleasant archive of, photos and texts that imply or directly state um, threats from male transgender activists, many of whom would would identify as women, Um, threats of violence, threats of sexual assault, threats of death, photos of weapons, you know, things like that that are sent to women who speak about this. And I know everyone likes to say this about their side, but there is absolutely no equivalence in the other direction. Yeah, I mean, I don't know, because uh, I've heard, you know, I've, uh, it's, I would be surprised if that's the case, only because, um, you know, even for something, you know, I know we, the three of us would consider ourselves pro-life in the sense that we are anti-abortion. I know pro-life encompasses a little bit, a little bit more than that. But you see people who are pro-life, um, you know, making death threats and, and uh, against people which is completely insane you know um it's it's not a it's not a coherent view um but you know i I try and on twitter i try and follow people like gender critical and people who are you know i just can't can't get on board 
with um yeah. and, and um you know they at least say similar things that they get abuses mm-hmm. as well um yeah. now may, maybe not you know, pictures of weapons and things like that but you know i, I think and uh, maybe not the level may, maybe not so much oh. i'd be surprised at the level but um now, gender critical feminists receive this all the time. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I try. Yeah, there's... yeah. No, I'm not. I'm not surprised. Twitter's a bit like that. I've always been interested to see how Twitter has been given so much power, or that the mob has been given so much power that both the media play off of it, and you find these articles that are just talking about the story of the day, and then Joe blogs on Twitter has said this, and he gets his comment viewed on on the news feed like he's an expert on the matter yeah. when he could well be a bot <laughs> I mean, it's just, it, you, you have no idea and and so there's an element within twitter you don't actually know if you're speaking to a bot or just i know i've had some really random responses to the to the stuff that i've shared it over time and even on youtube now generally the first comment is some bot that's said oh, i love your content be my friend mm-hmm. and yeah. and you end up with Twitter, even though you can't trust who you're interacting with, you have this engagement that suddenly can lose people their jobs and can really harm things that are, sure, they're sensitive topics in the sense that people's identities are wrapped up in them, but you should be able to have a conversation around it without... Yeah, and and people... People talk about mediums like Twitter and even Wikipedia as though it were a sort of democratic approach uh, because everyone has a say. But the thing is, you know, 90% of the sound is coming from you know, 5% of the people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I always find it interesting that, that um, I know it gets thrown around a bit, but it, but it almost is like a secular religion in the sense that you can identify liturgy. Um, you can identify, you know, uh, the sin, you can identify heresy. Um, and it's kind of, they, they almost take the, the kind of worst caricatures of religion uh, as, as a whole and then, and then apply it to their thing and are, and are completely yeah. unaware that that's what they're doing, you know, it, because that's yeah. what it is. It's like, you know, if you're a gender critical feminist, that's how you would describe yourself. That's heresy. And, and 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 it's considered heresy, and you can see the yeah. the, the the strength in, me, in which those views are, are met. And um, it's not just wrong. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, it's more than that. You're right. It's not it's not just wrong. It's not just something we can disagree about. It's mm. it's much it's much stronger than than that. In the same way, yeah. it's violence. Many years ago, mm. um, and many you know, when I was still entertaining hopes of professional academia. <laughs> so that's a long time ago. Um, I pondered, and I don't know why I never did it. I think I just didn't have time writing an article called Heresy as Hate Speech, how how people, and I think at the time it was because there was a discussion in New Zealand about uh, removing some old legislation because um, blasphemous libel was still on the, on the books as, as a crime. And you know, I, I had no particular issue with it being removed, but it, was, it struck me as, as how like laws against heresy and blasphemy are concerns about hate speech and the way that people are punished in more or less the same way. Mm. That's, that's interesting. And I've clocked that it's very much like shame. <laughs> we're, we're turning into a, a morality that's wrapped around shame. And if you're not, 
toeing the line and various things. You'll be cancelled. You'll be shunned. You'll be expelled from uh, whichever society or group that you you're meant to be a part of. And both employers and politicians are playing that game as well. Um, yeah, and it's you're right. It is a shame thing. It's not an engagement thing, and it's not a refutation thing. Mm. And if you if you point out to people that they're not really engaging, you'll get a response along the lines of, "Well, we don't engage with Nazis." And that sort of language is is far mm. more violent than they realize. I mean, what did mm. we do to the Nazis? Yeah, you know, we, we shot them. You know, <laughs> you know yeah. we hanged them. We put them on trial and killed them. Yeah, mm. um, it's uh, yeah. There's I don't think there's much much appreciation. I mean, there's no filter between these naive, violent impulses and and uh, the output on Twitter. Mm. And Bruce, Bruce Blackshaw's on the the chat. Uh, saying that the Twittersphere does seem to believe in objective moral values, though. Oh, very much so. Dogmatically so. Do they prove God, the, their objective morals? <laughs> well, well, yeah, yeah. Good luck convincing them. <laughs> Good luck think, convincing any of them to think long and hard enough about, about anything like the basis of, of, of objective moral fact. <laughs> Well, that, that 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 maybe moves us, segues us into maybe talking just very briefly about the, the moral, the moral <laughs> argument. Yeah. Well, look, look at that. We're, yeah. we're professionals here. Look at that. We have seven <laughs> subscribers in no time. Because <laughs> mm. um, I, I know you've um, you've you've written a fair bit about the moral argument. I'd say, um, am I a fan? Uh, I know the philosophical arguments for God. I'm I'm slightly, I don't know, dubious. Of the of them their merit, but of, of of them, I think definitely my favourite would be the the moral argument. Um, I, I wonder if you could maybe for people listening sort of sketch it out a little bit, um, yeah. and, and what what's what, what value it has, you know. Yeah. Okay. So I mean, the most the most well known form of the moral argument would be something along the lines of, um, if there are objective moral truths, then God exists. There are objective moral truths, and so. God exists. Um, the war, most of the war is waged around, well, it depends. In, in popular culture, most of the war is waged around the first premise, the, uh, the, con the conditional premise, namely, if there are moral truths, then God exists. Um, I th I'm, in, I'm strongly inclined to think that that premise is true, and that's what does pretty much all the work here. Pretty much, you know, in philosophy, some people have convinced themselves that there are no moral truths. Uh, that's their out. But most people aren't prepared to say that, um, especially, you know, woke people, because they know that some things are right and wrong. They're just wrong about which ones. Um, so the idea is that if there are moral truths, moral facts is what I've, the, the phrase that I've used. And I've noticed that since I've started publishing articles and giving talks using the phrase moral facts, it's starting appearing, started appearing more in the Christian apologetics community. I'm going to take some credit for that. No, do it. <laughs> uh, so if there are moral facts, then their explanation is either natural or non-natural. You could say not natural or supernatural, but some people don't like that, but it means the same thing. Yeah. Um, and those 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 categories are supposed to be uh, construed as mutually exclusive. There's nothing else available other than what's natural and what's not. Um, and then I think that the best explanation of moral facts, if there are any, is non-natural, because you know natural facts are just facts about what is. They they are measurements of what is out there. They they are not 
teleological in nature. They don't tell you what should be the case. They just tell you what is the case. But moral facts aren't, aren't simply descriptive. They're also prescriptive. Mm. Uh, and natural facts tend not to be like that. I'm moving fairly quickly. Um, and if, if the best explanation, if, if the explanation of moral facts is non-natural, then the best explanation is that there is a non-natural person involved. And this is where some people raise their eyebrow and go, what do you mean? <laughs> and moral facts have opinions. And that might seem like a weird thing to say, but moral facts want you to do some things and not others. Mm. Um, they, they have, you know, you encounter, and not everyone will buy this initially too, but I think it's true at a psychological level. You encounter moral facts in the way that you encounter the commandments of a person. Um, and if there is, if there is a non-natural person who is the best explanation of moral facts, then that person is something very much like what we call God. And, that, and it runs. That's that's more or less the argument. At right at the end of the argument, though, of course, people can can escape the existence of God by digging their heels into what some people would regard as quite implausible and just say, well, then there are, there are no moral facts. There's nothing to be explained. And you can do that. And that's, and that, that's why, um, you know, I mean, I think the moral argument is sound, but I can easily see how it could be unpersuasive to some people because they would sooner give up the possibility that God exists than, than they would, sorry, they're willing to give up God rather than uh, embrace moral realism, even though moral realism, seem, and that seems like a, to me a huge price to pay, but mm. um, people are very willing to pay it mm. because God is a demanding moralistic um, thing. You know, it, it, there are, the demand of believing in God, if you take it seriously, you know, the God who commands, the God who is the basis of moral facts is also a God that you can't ignore. So what, what 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 would some of the what do you think are some of the strongest objections to to the moral argument? And um, I think sort of in mind that have someone like Aaron, Eric Weidenberg, you know, kind of argues that um, the moral facts are a kind of sui generis feature of the universe, yeah. which is a really interesting view. I think I've you know the the critics that I've kind of read, I find him probably the most persuasive. Out, out I think I don't know if that's fair. Well, I don't know about persuasive because I, I don't see him offering, well, not in my view anyway, a good case that that's what morality is like. But yeah, I, I find him to have the most coherent objection. I just, so his his view for viewers who aren't, it's, it's Eric Wielenberg, isn't it? Isn't that how you say yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, sorry, Wielenberg. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm glad you're explaining I, it. I'll be the viewer that doesn't have a clue what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. So, so his view is, well, it's, it's a kind of, it's, it's moral realism, so there are moral facts, and it's moral non-naturalism. The idea is that those facts are not explained in terms of any other thing, but rather they're like a platonic form. They're like a platonic object that just exists in and of itself, uh, and they need no further basis. So you can, and that, and that can be labeled in a number of ways, sui generis or, or just brute. Um, I... I, I I think they're a fairly ad hoc thing. Um, I mean, how would you even um, how would you even know which moral facts existed? There, there, is, there is, I think, a significant epistemological block there. Um, I don't see how 
they could convey the nature of their existence to you. And not only that, but it's it's very far from being a simple view. I mean, there, there is more than one moral truth. And so for every moral truth, there must be, a, 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 depending on how you construe it, a non-natural entity uh, explaining them. So if the... <clears throat> We're sort of looking at more specifically like divine command ethics mm. and, the, and the moral argument. What does, does that commit you to any particular moral epistemology? Like, because um, I've always been interested uh, in sort of, the, of like natural yeah, I, law and things like I that. I don't think that it does. And, and I know that, um, I know, and I wrote an article a little while ago called The Epistemological Objection to Divine Command Ethics, because some people have raised the concern that if well, if ethics is grounded in God at all, uh, let alone in God's commands, then those who don't believe in God wouldn't, wouldn't, you're saying that atheists can't be moral or, or can't know right from wrong or, or something like that. And that's just not true at all. That, that's like, that's like saying, you know, if you believe that God created the world, then atheists can't do science because they don't know where it came from. Well, that's just false. Um, you know, I think moral facts are real, and I think God created this in such a way as to be able to perceive them. Um, I don't see any particular block. Now, having said that, if you believe in God, uh, you know, and you pay attention to his revelation in, in Scripture, um, yeah, I think you're going to be aware of more moral obligations. And but I don't I don't have any issue at all with that. You know, I I think um, for example you love should your love neighbor the Lord as yourself. Yeah, well, well I think most people can pick up on that one. Uh, but something like you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. <coughs> that's that's to put it mildly, just more apparent from Scripture than it is from nature. <laughs> mm. And and I have no issue with the fact that atheists are are, are pushing away certain moral facts um, by virtue of the rejection of God. But I don't see that as much of an objection to the theory. There is much that they can know about God just by virtue of the fact that God made them to hear his voice. Yeah, sorry, I don't mean love your enemies. I, I, I meant in my head, love your enemies. Oh, I see. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Yeah, love yeah. your enemies. I can do that. So, depends if your neighbor is an enemy, then you've got a problem. That's true. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Well, just just on a sort of more popular level, you've got people like Sam Harris that would say, well, actually, we can science our way towards moral facts. Yeah, he doesn't science his way to moral facts. So what Sam Harris does is he, um, the best, I think the best short introduction to Sam Harris, he gives this TED talk on the subject of when his book, The Moral Landscape, came out. And he basically says, well, of course, there are scientific answers to moral questions because there are scientific answers to the questions of how to promote human flourishing. Hmm. And, and I thought, yes, there are scientific questions, scientific answers to the question of how to promote human flourishing, but that is not, those aren't moral facts. No. The, the moral fact would be something along the lines of you ought to promote human flourishing, and science doesn't tell you that. Mm-hmm. No. no. There's the yeah, that's a significant difference of where you where you start, and I I found Sam Harris's whole book to be floundering on on just that premise of this idea that flourishing is any way to base our morality on, and who yeah. who's flourishing? What if the both? What if the option is one or the other? Do we only promote by flourishing? Well, uh, yeah, I remember. 
I suppose you could adopt for a utilitarian approach, you know, the flourishing of, of the many <laughs> as opposed to the flourishing of the one. Yeah. I remember uh, towards the end of, oh no, actually, it, I think it was his debate with William Lane Craig, uh, where he reproduced all of his errors. <laughs> and um, and he was challenging challenging Bill. We can, I can call him Bill. I have a PhD as well, you see. Um, <laughs> he was challenging him on, on the whole notion that atheism doesn't provide a foundation for morality and he was saying something along the lines of look um we know how you know there are some things that are just obvious he said yeah take two outcomes or, or, or consider the possibility of, of someone suffering as much as is humanly possible for their entire life there are facts about how we can stop that and he said and if we have any obligations at all we have an obligation to do that <laughs> you don't realize that the whole issue is hiding under the rock of if we have any obligations at all. Yeah. Well, that's, well, that's you know, a, like a, a feature of, of, moral, of morality is that there's an oughtness to it. And so uh, he doesn't, he doesn't have any, he's, he's not able to bridge from, uh, you know, a, a statement of fact about the world to why that ought to be the, the, the case. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Why should and, the world be a certain way? Yeah. Mm. Phil, what are you going to, no, 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 I was just agreeing. Oh, uh, no. you, you look like you're about to ask a question. No, 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 I, I, thought, I, I, thought, you, I thought you were, you were going to follow up. Um, so what, what, what role, I'd be interested, like, what, what role do you think um, sort of uh, philosophical arguments for God kind of play in apologetics and, and evangelism? Like, do they have any roles? I often think sort of, it seems to be sort of in-house in jousting, uh, you know about yeah more, more yeah than so I am um, so I've I never met gone yeah so for example I used to I just recently left because I got sick of it um, belonged to a uh, a very popular Christian apologetics Facebook group um, and so often what happens in, in groups like that is people will come along and say hey look here's this doctrine that I disagree with as an apologist how can I oppose it <laughs> it's a Christian doctrine that a whole bunch of believers hold. And yeah, so there is a, there's a serious misunderstanding of, of, of why apologetics exists. Mm -hmm. And people just equate apologetics with arguing about yeah. whatever, really. Is it not? Uh, Have I been? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, when you really, uh, I mean, apologia, and this is something that every apologist is taught, apologia was a courtroom term for giving a defense. So it was giving an giving an account of what you believe and some reasons to accept your account. And that's what apologetics is. Um, and that includes... Don't, don't forget, two, was it 1 Peter 3.15 or 2 Peter 3.15? That goes alongside it every time. Yeah. Well, and, and rightly so, I think. And they seem to, you know, not always catch the, the last part of that, which says, but do it with gentleness and respect. <laughs> no, that's not in my Bible. I, I scratched it out. <laughs> yeah. But, but look, I mean, I think apologetics has value. I, I just, I don't like the fact that apologetics has become sort of an industry in, in itself mm, yeah. because it was never that, it was never that in, in scripture. You know, there were never people who were into apologetics. There were Christians, and you know, mm -hmm. at some point they would give an account of their faith and explain why they why they had that faith. Um, uh, but it really has become an industry. You know, the books that pour out, and and um, uh, I love apologetics. I don't necessarily like apologists. <laughs> one, way to, one way to put it. We um, we talked to this uh, with we brought this up, didn't we? For I think with mm -hmm. Glenn Shivner yeah. as well about you know these whole mini, like, apologist ministries. You know that, that they actually 
they can spend the whole careers never engaging someone who's not a Christian because you can mm. just, um, yeah. you know, and that, that like, like you, that seems slightly absurd to me because we, you know, we'd all consider Paul, Apostle Paul an apologist, but he was also an evangelist, mm. you know, mm. that it wasn't, it, apologist, apologetics wasn't an end in itself. Mm. It was simply the means to, to being equipped to engaging, you know, the Greeks and the Jews and the, the you know, etc. So it's... Yeah. But look, I think apologetics does have great value. Um, mm. and, and, and it may be that it has greater value for Christians. And that's all right. Yeah. Um, you know, because generally speaking, the doubts that Christians are going to face are not rational in nature. Um, and, I, and, and this is going to depend on, on what everyone's individual psychological makeup is like as to what sorts of doubts they face. But, I, you know, I face it. I still face it now. But there is immense value in being able to analyze those doubts and say these are emotional doubts these are just emotional states really that are created by the circumstances in which i often find myself or or just because or just when the mind wanders and you and you start saying things like what if mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what, what, and that's entirely not rational in nature and it's really really useful um life-saving to be able to reflect on the fact that no there are actually very good rational reasons to believe that christianity is true in those moments that's a that's that's a fantastic thing so yeah um apologetics as an in-house thing is is not the end of the world for me um how much yeah I, i i i don't know and i guess it would be a matter of empirical inquiry uh how much impact the apologetics industry has on people who are not Christians, Mm. because most of what I see is it just provokes people who are particularly antsy in their atheism to fight back. And it would never have benefited them in the first place Mm. because they're just looking for a fight. Like some apologists are to be fair. (laughs) Um, It's easy to on, on Twitter, as we've already discussed, it's not exactly a place full of gentleness and respect. You I avoid, avoided twitter and then i started it for this and uh my other channel and and i just find myself you just find yourself getting caught up in or i do in trying to prove something you kind of come out of the conversation well i didn't i didn't win even if i got my point across (laughs) i Mm. didn't uh, just kind of empty argument so it would be an issue of of empirical inquiry because i do believe that apologetics makes a positive difference yeah Um, it makes a negative difference too for some people because it just hardens them in their resolve to find a good response. Not that they'll find a good one, but it, it makes them more you know, interested in fighting with us. But yeah. yeah, there are people for whom people for whom are really winsome, not necessarily technical and, and full-on academic, but but a winsome and clear uh, demonstration that actually there is a re- there is a reasonableness to this. Um, those are the people for, for whom I think it has great value. I think for me personally, that's exactly what it was when I came to making the decision for myself because I grew up in a Christian family, but I ended up having to make a decision around university to to actually, is this my faith? And around that point, it was around the apologetics around the resurrection that really when actually this is reasonable, that there are good reasons to trust the Gospels, good reasons to trust the account of um uh, so the creed in Corinthians that Christ died, was buried and, and rose again. And there's this testimony that follows on from that. And mm. so there was a definite apologetics around it, 
but alongside that, I also made the decision to to pray and to read the Bible more. And the two have to go hand in hand. Uh, yeah. And I do distinctly remember to stop reading my Bible like I'm an atheist <laughs> and actually mm. start expecting God to speak through it. Mm. Um, so I, I think the two do go hand in hand, but depending on, on the, the apologetics of and philosophy, I think is very highbrow, high level philosophy that I just, it goes well over my head and I end up going, I don't th- see this dealing with my life and the certain things that we face daily. And why does it, why does it matter? There's a moral argument argument when life is poop right now. Um, mm. That's, that's mm. I think that's where apologetics needs to work on. And what I'm seeing in the apologetics world is actually an in-house debate as to whether or not you're sticking with Romans and everyone's, no one's really an atheist and it's all presuppositionalist or you're a rationalist. And then there's this sort of back and forth between certain channels fighting over that. It's like, well, maybe it's a bit of both. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I think it is a bit of both. Um, And since, since you raised it just now, and I don't know how much this will mean to your audience depends on what, 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 how on their familiarity with different um, apologetics schools of thought, but yeah, there is the whole, um, presuppositional. I was going to say there are multiple schools of thought, you know, like classical evidentialist, presuppositionalist, and so on. But basically, it's presuppositionalist versus everybody else. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds um, about right. Yeah. Yeah. And if you're not with them, you're definitely against. No. I, <laughs> but uh, but uh, yeah, this is my segue into saying that actually, that they're not they're not wrong about everything. Um, I think that transcendental a transcendental argument for non naturalism is fairly good. It's just that. Um, I think that presuppositionalists don't really understand it. Uh, many of them, anyway, they seem to think that you must presuppose not merely non-naturalism in order to get to things like logic, science, morality, and whatnot, but you must presuppose biblical Trinitarian Christianity in order to make sense of any of this. And I've never, ever seen a good argument for that. Hmm. Seems a stretch. I will... <laughs> to put it mildly. Yeah. And especially if you've never heard of any of those terms before hmm. it, it does see it it presupposes a western ideal of christianity before it gets to any, any of those yeah, and it's yeah it involves a lot of slogans too that i don't think the proponents of presuppositional apologetics usually understand or could unpack if if asked to so it'll be something like well if you're engaging with people and trying to convince them on rational terms that God exists, then you're meeting them on their own territory. What does that mean? And I think that's where things start to get a bit muddy and you start to hear accusations of, of being unfaithful, you know, uh, being intellectually unfaithful. Um, but why exactly is hmm. logic is logic and science meeting unbelievers on their own territory? I mean, don't presuppositionalists believe that those things are actually the theists' home turf? Well, only if it's true science with a capital T. <laughs> I think it'd be, it'd be interesting <laughs> to um, to do like a survey of, of presuppositional apologists uh, or, or not apologists necessarily, but people who hold that, that, that perspective and find out how many of them became Christians on the basis of presuppositional apologetics. Mm. 
it would just be interesting to find out. It's like, you know, 80% of people became Christians, <laughs> not because, not well, on the basis I mean, of... Sort of... As, as, a, yeah, as someone with an interest in psychology, we should be very suspicious of self-reporting about, yeah. why, you, about <laughs> why you did something. Because <laughs> what happens is we do something, and then in retrospect, we write a story about why we did it. And that story yes. is going to be written in light of what we now believe. And if, and if they're now presuppositionalists, then the explanation will be, well, it will be a presuppositional one. That's true. <laughs> yeah. Motivated reasoning. Yeah. The, um, yeah, no, that's probably true. <laughs> um, maybe moving away a bit from this now, I'd be interested mm. to, um, given all the, um, what would be a word, turmoil, um, discussion um going on in regards to to george floyd's uh, death yeah. um it might be interesting just to, to talk a bit about um you know what i read some of your comments on facebook and things i know me and phil have, have had a few discussions around this as well but just kind of looking at um what you think about the sort of christian response to racism uh, what what is it what's what have you perceived that to be and and uh, yeah, what yeah. what should it be what should it be as well Honestly, um, I mean, the world is burning, isn't it? It's just crazy. There yeah. is, I mean, it's happening. I mean, and so in New Zealand now, you know, there are demonstrations and people talking about pulling down old statues and whatnot. Uh, I mean, obviously, this isn't all because of George Floyd's death, um, but that was the that was the catalyst that people mm -hmm. said, you know what, let's just bring it all out of the closet now and deal with it, uh, man. <laughs> but yeah, um, Christians don't always help themselves in response to these, mm -hmm. these sorts of things. And I'm, you know, so I, and I, I try not to, to push too hard because, you know, there are limits as to what people can hear and there are limits as to what people can accept. Um, and you should, you know, with, with some people, you do have to take a, a very gentle incremental approach, but uh, that's not really me. So I just, <laughs> I just, I, I've been, not not really trolling, but I've been I've been trying to be a bit of a stone in people's shoe, uh, or my fellow Christians' shoe anyway, on on this issue lately because I think that some of them need to hear it in ways that they're not really willing to hear it, and that needs to change. And, and but what I'll do is I'll just bring up one issue, and I'll just focus on that one issue and talk about it and try to show people that it's reasonable and state it in ways that I think are, are reasonable. Uh, and so the one that I've decided to bring up a lot lately is the, is the whole issue of privilege and the issue of white privilege. Um, now, white privilege isn't a special thing. It's just privilege had by white people. Um, <clears throat> and, and of course, all it really amounts to is the acknowledgement of the fact, and, and it really is a fact, and I think there's no serious denying that it's a fact, that in... In developed nations like the United States or Canada or, or in the UK or New Zealand, where we have an ethnically diverse population, but we definitely have a white majority and a history where uh, the white majority has used, well, I don't want to talk about it as though it's a collective entity, but where minorities have suffered disadvantages. It is just true that being white bestows upon you certain advantages. And they're often very subtle advantages, but the, the aggregation of all those advantages put together is what we call white privilege, the privilege of being white. And it'll be, for example, the attitude that law enforcement has to you, 
the way that people look at you. I mean, you, you, two people walking down the street, dressed fairly scruffily. One of them is me. Well, when I don't have a freshly cut mohawk and I'm looking a bit respectable. Yeah. And one of them is, is a young Maori guy, you know, in New Zealand. Uh, you know, the Maori people, uh, we don't you know, really have African-Americans because we're not American, but that would be an example. Mm. They're going to look at us differently. And their expectations about our behavior will be different. And, you know, expectations about academic success and the way that we are treated is, is at, at multiple levels um, in, in ways that affect our opportunities in life in, in, in long-term ways that are quite drastic, those differences exist. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's what... Yeah. Can I interject while we're doing this? I'm just thinking, because I'm going to have, I'm going to have multiple questions, I think, as you, mm. as you discuss this. So something, um, so when, when you mentioned about, you said the Maui and, 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 and yourself, now, uh, another, another way to view that would be that, uh, at least over here, maybe in some of like the US and the UK, is another explanation for that could also be based on classism. So if I'm walking past a white person in a suit, you know, you'll know as you know, in studying psychology, we have certain heuristics, you know, we work through certain mental health shortcuts um, that make life livable, you know, in mm. a way. So if I walk past a smart uh, white man in a suit uh, and I walk kind of walk past a black person, maybe, or maybe another ethnic minority or even a even a white per, a white person any 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 color of someone say in a hoodie uh in uh i i might you know through a through a sort of using that sort of heuristic i might have i might engender the belief that that person may be more of a threat than the person in a suit even if yeah. it could be a black person in the suit asian person in the suit, or white person in the suit, they're less of a threat because I have the heuristic based on uh, perhaps personal experience, uh, uh, media, all sorts of things that have shown me that I should be, uh, that the person in a hoodie is more of a, a threat to my safety than someone in a suit. Yeah, but it's so when you have. It, yeah, that's true. So, my, so, so, in my so, example, we were both dressed the same. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And yet, yeah. So, yeah, and absolutely. I mean, white privilege, this is why I don't talk so much about white privilege. I just talk about privilege because. Right. Because being white isn't the only thing that gives you privilege. Being a being a good-looking person is, and people overlook how much of a privilege that is. This is it's, it's referred to as hot privilege. It's yeah, real. Yeah. <laughs> it yeah, makes yeah, a yeah. massive difference. Um, and 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 all all we're doing when we talk about white privilege is acknowledging that in the sorts of societies we're talking about, being white is one of those things that gives you privilege. And and yeah, um, class as well. So you know, two black people obviously from different classes. That's going to make a difference. Uh, two people from from apparently the same sort of financial and educational background. One is white, one is black. They will not be treated the same. Uh, and, yeah, and I think if if I was to walk around or even drive around in tracksuit trousers and like just a scruffy top, I wouldn't even need to consider. Actually, I might be stopped. I'm going to have to make sure my wallet's with me, make sure my, my insurance and my car's all sorted. But I'm, I know for a fact that friends of mine who are black in their first couple of years of driving, they were stopped multiple times, even if they had dressed smart and they had to make sure that they had to have their wallet with them, their papers all sorted. Um, so it's, 
It's thing. Where's when, that? Sorry, is that in the UK? Yeah, that was Brighton. Right. So I, I think with the it's it's the fact that I don't have to think about race at all in the UK because it, yeah. and that, that's that, that's the and see, for some people that's what forms their response they're like what do you mean race is an issue i've never experienced anything like that <laughs> well, of yeah. course you haven't um and and the christian response when people raise these concerns is really unhelpful um and sometimes the response from people who have spent a lot of time studying this issue is really unhelpful because the particular things that they study skew their perspective. So if you get, for example, a person, and I've had this, people who are really, really interested in in things like cultural Marxism and in, in, in debunking the Black Lives Matters organization and movement, which is not what I'm talking about, or um, critical race theory, they'll be very sensitive to these terms. And whenever you start mentioning them, they're like, oh, so you, you're aligning yourself with the Marxists. You're aligning yourself with the critical race theorists. No, I'm not. Now, the, these concepts existed independently of these organizations and movements. And it's just really unhelpful that um, Christians have started to associate the two. And it's really damaging too, because when I raise a concern or just a statement or an observation about racism and people assume that I'm on you know, verbally on, in, pu in public in front of others on Facebook, start assuming that I'm a Marxist or I'm on the left. <laughs> what that means is, and what, what, and how that will be seen by everyone else is me, my culture, conservative Christianity doesn't, doesn't care about those things. Mm -hmm. If you raise those concerns, that makes you on the left. What a load of nonsense, but what, what a horrible way to depict the conservative Christian right. Mm. Yeah, no, I've I've seen those threads both on your feed and and even on my own where I've where I've talked about white privilege, and the you can the, the responses are, are very much distractions from the topic or denying it exists. The then also worrying about the language. Um, it, it is interesting to watch, but I, it is unhelpful, and and it. I think it shows on my thread who's actually engaging in those conversations and it's not anyone from the backgrounds that actually are experiencing it. Mm. Um, yeah. And I, I've, I've, I find that actually quite worrying that all my friends who are black, Asian, whatever minority we're talking about, they're just watching <laughs> and mm. I've got this thread full of people who are, some of them are just really searching. They're searching for the right language to put on it, but there's this lack of listening, I guess, going on. Uh, and I'm trying to explain. It's like a bunch of, bunch of men arguing about what it's like to have a period. <laughs> <laughs> I think, yeah, I think, well, it must look like it. <laughs> one, one way to look at it as well is that people, you have to think as well what the, the type of the, the messages that people are getting now you know if all we mean by white privilege is that you have the privilege of not experiencing racism i mean that just seems self-evidently true mm. but i think you know especially you know in the, the countries you know represented here and 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 the, and the and the us you know if you're a white person you're highly unlikely there might be some minorities that how prejudiced towards uh, white people uh, but largely, you're very unlikely to experience it in a way that's going to affect 
any you know uh, significant outcome in, 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 mm. in your life but I think the problem is is what people are reading you know if you're the stuff that you know faith comes through on your Facebook feed and on Twitter is from people who are um, you know perhaps more on the critical race theorist side who are saying things and you're thinking well you know if I say if I admit I have white privilege I'm admitting to, to these things, you know, that, you know, mm. someone like Robin DiAngelo and, and, and these types of people is yeah, kind of, yeah, they're yeah, kind of sure. saying that I'm, you know, I'm just a racist and there's nothing. And even when you say you're not a racist, well, that's actually a racist thing to say, you know, because it's, uh, so I think what, what happens, I think a more charitable approach is, is that criticism is, is rooted in the messages that they're receiving. Cause I think if you, if, as I said, if, if all we mean by that, it's just self-evidently true. But, you know, I, I have other concerns, you know, I don't know I had discussed it with, with Phil and you'll be interested in this too, Glenn, is when, um, if you deliver, um, there was a, a psychology study uh, done last, last year, I think, or maybe the year before, is that when, you, when, when, people, when people undergo um, white privilege training, what, what happens is that they're more likely to be to hold then disparaging discriminatory discriminatory views against white people who are under the poverty line. So yeah. they, they then hold more positive views about uh, African-Americans, which is which is great. But when what happens, because if you if if by being white, you by default have uh, you have privilege and access, uh, basically an advantage, a, a foot up, a leg up. If you're white and you're poor, the only explanation can be is that you fail to take advantage of yeah. the advantage of, of your white privilege, and so you don't really deserve yeah, 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 yeah. sympathy. And yeah. that and that's that yeah. that's something that does concern me as well. Again, it's not enough to say, "Right, I'm not going to." You know, yeah, that. and it's it, and it it's um. I mean, it can be a fairly simplistic objection to the concept of privilege, and and I hear this from and this is one of the pushbacks I get too. It's like, um, but I was white and I was poor, mm. um, ergo ergo no white privilege but so it's important to stress that this number one is not the only sort of privilege that exists there are there are, there are thousands of of competing uh, privileges and disadvantages that people face uh, and and having one does not automatically trump all the others and able and enable you to overcome them mm. uh, and that and that you yeah, know that's part of the risk where where you become so interested in the concept of white privilege that it's the most important or the only uh privilege or factor in the game and it's clearly not yeah i mean because again i'm totally for black lives matter I'm, I'm less hesitant about the, the movement itself. And I know we've, we've discussed, Phil, things about, you know, their criticism of the, the nuclear family and things like that. And uh, which itself seems a little bit imperialist in a way. Um, but um, one, of the, I think one of the concerns I have, and I think people have, is about your, the person person experience so i i no one because I, I have these questions in my head and i never have anyone to ask mm. <laughs> so but but how how do you know an act is racist because that's what i can't find an answer to so because if mm. if you look in an other you know if you look in the dictionary now a definition of racism is that you know it's what we usually think of is that as a yeah. white person you think that you hold a belief that you are superior to other races and so that old type of racism um, is easy to discern. You know, if someone says, you know, I hate, 
black people or hate Asian people or something like that. Well, we, we know what that is. We know that we can say, look, from an epistemic point of view, I know that is racist. Now, mm-hmm. one, one of the issues is if, if someone is killed, um, you know, a minority is killed by a police officer, um, if we, we, can't, we can't say that every time um, a non-white person is killed by a police officer, that that is by default racist. Okay, well, I think right. we, can all, yeah. we can all agree that, can't we? Okay, sure. that just be, yeah, so that's, that's, so then we're in the predicament is how do we discern between the death, uh, the killing of a non-white person um, that could be legitimate you know, from a legitimate police contact of uh, someone who's armed, etc., and and the mo- and so the motivation is is more obvious there. But how we did, how do we discern between the two? Yeah. Because if yeah. do you see what I mean? Like, there's no yeah, so yeah, that's what I'm saying. From there's a, from no, a, from there's a, no cut and dry way to do that. Well, I mean, there might be some really blatant cases we don't know that, but yeah. no. But generally speaking, it's it's I don't know. I would. I mean, if, say, for example, in the case of, of Mr. Floyd, was that racist? Well, I would be hesitant to say so. Not because I'm not because I think it wasn't, but but because I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's and this is the thing about you know you know in psychology in 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 we human beings are terrible at accurate, accurately describing people's motivations. <clears throat> and in mm-hmm. fact, I think if I'm right, that usually the more confidence you have. Uh, at, um, Identifying you, if, if you're the more confidence you have in identifying someone's motivations, it's more likely that you're actually wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that we're we're terrible. I mean, we lie to ourselves. We kind of get our own motivations sort of lined lined mm-hmm. up. And but racism is racism is beyond just motive. Oh, like so, George Floyd. I'd be hesitant to say that was outright racism, unless Chauvin, his eighteen counts of previous. Uh, issues within police were all black people like, or, yeah. or majority black uh, so there may well be evidence that we, i just don't know that shows that it is yeah so. or at least a trend towards it but it also floyd didn't happen in a vacuum you had arbury three well, a few weeks before you had um amy cooper and christian cooper who just so happened to have a surname that's, that's similar in, in new york where you've got a white woman actually changing the tone of her voice to call the police to say a black man is attacking her who's just standing there with a phone and and so you've got this this trend three quick succession in quick succession events that just feel like a broader trend from the last 50 100 years and then you've got around it you've got news articles of people burning crosses and and things like that so whether or not the act was racist it has sparked racial issues um that are in and of themselves racist and and then you you find yourself with with narratives with where people post well actually i mean there are white deaths with police but to you, you'll see that as people go, that this is happening where there's black men interacting with police and getting killed. And then you get the white guys going, well, what about white people? What about black and black violence? And then you start looking at, there's this bias within the justice system that can be seen, at least in America, by the fact that from 
year dot with any person who's black, they have a whole system that's kind of stacked against them. They're going to get more likely to be stopped, which then makes them more likely to be caught with something, which the, once they are caught, they're more likely to get a get caught again, but they're also more likely to have a harder fine, a harder record. And then it goes up from there. And, and that's the kind of racism that's not necessarily down to a single individual, but a system of bias that most, most, not all, most white people don't have to face. Now, a lot of white people will have poverty and other aspects that aren't privileged, but the issue is that the, the bias can be found through through looking at the statistics that are in there. And there's a few articles that will show that. And and so while I'm very hesitant to say this is a race thing between the cop and the then Floyd, it is a racist thing in the society that that's happened in. Yeah, I mean, there's no doubt that racism may play a, obviously could play a, play a part in that. I'm not I'm not disagreeing with that. But the again, and Glenn will know more about this is that. Well, because I was fine, I just have these uncomfortable questions in my head, and I don't do it to pee people off on being disingenuous. I just have like these questions: is that if you if you approach a research question for a, like a univariate, so you basically you, know, you have you have one variable, okay, and if the variable is racism, you can't you'll never get a legitimate answer to a question if, if there's only one possible mm. variable. Yeah, and, yeah. and 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 the thing about when you look at the you know some of the sentencing. Is again, I'm not negating that some of that it may be down to, to racial prejudice, but a lot of it is explained by um, you know, social uh, um, economic demographics. So if you're, uh, yeah. is that you're proportionally okay. more likely to, um, you know, to be under the poverty line? I think it's twenty percent. I think it's tw yeah, twenty twenty percent. And so what? When you're in a system, if you if you're rich and white. You know, you can go and get a lawyer. You don't have to have you know a rubbish one who's got a thousand cases trying to look after you because you're not going to get um, you know they'll mount up a certain number of charges against you and you won't necessarily have the, the knowledge or expertise to to get yourself out of that. So uh, I'm not saying all of it can be explained by that, but probably a significant proportion of that can be explained by socioeconomic demographics and encounters with police. Obviously, that doesn't explain the fact that you know if 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 you're you know non-white and you're more likely to be um get into the system to begin with that could be where there's the the, the definitely the rate the racial um element in there but i just think again yeah. no one no one likes asking these dealing with these questions because again it, it, it's racism but probably and <laughs> yeah no it's which is good but i yeah. think it's racism yeah. and and i think to have yeah, that one I, variable is i think i mean the way that people have have sought to so I mean I don't I don't typically approach the angle approach the issue from here are the numbers of people who are uh, are killed by the police, but suppose we did. Uh, every time I have discussed that, the pushback that I get is is somewhat simplistic, and it'll be something like, uh, you can't assume that uh, the different outcomes with the police in terms of assault assaults by the police, uh, killings by the police, arrests, incarcerations, and so on. Uh, because of race, because the stats show that <clears throat> it occurs because blacks commit more crime, and mm -hmm. and then that's the bottom of the explanation that is given. Like there goes no deeper than that. So 
which which can't in my ears sound like anything other than black people by virtue of being black are more criminally inclined this is horrendous yeah. not true. which is a yeah, and people will say, oh, I'm not saying that. Well, then, then why does the explanation that you just gave me stop there, where you yeah. say it's because they commit more crime, really? So that's the cause of this. Why do you, I mean, it's so, but you don't think, do you, that the genes that make you black <laughs> make you commit more crime? Oh, no, 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 I wouldn't say that. Okay, so what do you think is going on here? Why is it, why are there these differences? Oh, oh, some people would say that yeah. you're right, but uh, those are fewer now than than, than they used yeah, to be. Hopefully yeah, hopefully shrinking. Yeah, well, yeah. Well, I mean, it's as though there are no causes underlying this at all. Yeah. Uh, you look, you've got in, in America, you've got you know just well, not it's it's no longer true to say just this century, but in living memory for some people, there was racial segregation for goodness' sake. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, you yeah. Know, that that makes a difference. Mm-hmm. Have you have you watched Thirteenth? Is it Thirteen or Thirteenth? I've, I've got it on my watch list. I need to watch. Yeah, it. it's 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 really interesting, and um, yeah, definitely opened my eyes to it. I know there's been criticism of it, but even the criticisms I looked, I think the general thrust of the documentary is you can clearly see, you know how. African-Americans, you know, post-slavery started off from a point of significant disadvantage. And I think to, uh, to, to ignore that or to negate it is just uh, dumb. I mean, there's no, other, there's no other way to describe it. If you, if you can look at that, that history and think that you're starting from a place of equal footing, it's just absurd to, to think that. And like you said, you know, Jim Crow, um, you know, people still alive now. Um, one downside to this, to the fact that it's all coming out of American news stories, mm. is that we're all focusing on America instead of what's yeah. happening in our own countries. Mm. Now, in New Zealand, the Maori population uh, suffered phenomenal disadvantages, and in, in the uh, especially in, well, in, when when colonization here first began. I don't have a problem, incidentally, with the concept of colonization, but the way that it was done, my God, yeah. So, sort of late nineteenth uh, and most of the twentieth century here. Um, you know, these the systemic disadvantages that were put in place and people just aren't aware of them um, because they don't know those aspects of history. So they don't know, for example, the way that uh, the Māori language was banned in schools. People don't know that, but it makes, <laughs> and if they were aware of these things or, or, or just the various land seizures and, and, and whatnot, um, economic disadvantages that exist now uh, mean that Māori people are, uh, are disproportionately facing the other types of privilege uh, reverse privileges that we were talking about earlier, like class privileges. Um, why is it, for example, that that class disadvantage, you know, you, you can say, well, class is, is, is as much of, of a disadvantage, if not more. Why is it that class disadvantage shows up so often in these ethnic minority groups? Yeah. Yeah. That's huge. And I, so I, with the whole colonial aspect of things, when I mean, you, you see it with um, sort of Aborigines in in Australia and, and even the, the term that, that's given there, but also I've, I've seen conversations completely negating the fact that even America was colonized and mm. sort of bringing up the great emancipator <laughs> Lincoln as though he's this mm. great guy that understood humanity and the way he describes black people it, it just has not aged well and no, no. Doesn't, doesn't show a guy that understands being made in God's image. Mm. And, and then it, <laughs> it was shared with me that actually it was a really good idea he had that people should be shipped back to Africa. Like that, 
that's a, a solution as a Christian to, uh, and and that's that's what's offensive to me is actually underlying some of these responses is outright racism, yeah. and and that's that's the bit that's a difficulty, especially over social social media, is trying to work out well who's who's read a bit of critical theory. And fortunately, I knew a few people in my thread had, and I could see where it was coming from, and they're just struggling with the terms. And who's just, who's not? And actually, some of the things that are coming coming out, and then the sort of, yeah, the, the inherent, inherently more criminal uh, type of commentary is there. Um, but what's interesting from, from a personal side to me, so I grew up in Papua New Guinea, and um, the conversations that I've been having within the missionary community about what mission looks like um, when you are a mostly white mission community in a black country um, and how the, the privileges of being in a pretty much private mission school while down the road is a, a national states school um, that's floundering and I come out of this country with pretty much a private education with American teachers that have been flown in, especially with a small class and, and top facilities. And then knowing down the road, there's people that have grown up with very little and there's no communication between the two. And yet we're there to translate their Bibles for them and tell them about God. And, and you, you suddenly go, what, what's interesting is I, I was aware of that because I lived with a couple of Papua New Guinean guys. I boarded at this mission school and um, while well, my parents were in another town and I lived with a couple of Papua New Guinean guys and could see the way that they were treated. So I was aware of it while I was there, but I've got friends who are suddenly going, oh my gosh, I was so privileged. And, and mm. what you, it, the, the history of Papua New Guinea is such that the racism is completely inverted in that the racism I faced was being called master. And I had to try and combat that with Papua New Guinean people that didn't know me, but because that's the ingrained colonization language that you're called master. And, and I could, I could have got away with a lot simply because I was white. And I know a lot of people that did. And then you look at how the Papua New Guinean guys didn't <laughs> and you're like, this is, it's, it is ingrained, at, unfortunately, at a, a Christian idea of mission i mean it's part of it is this idea of savior complex i've got mm. um i've got the truth you clearly don't your civilization needs the truth i need your resources <laughs> that's a bit beyond <laughs> it but yeah. there's there's this i'm going to bring civilization and take from from that and there's yeah loads of that within uh, that conversation's actually been healthy to suddenly see my missionary kid friends suddenly realize yes you did have quite a a privilege to to enjoy that country while not necessarily engaging in the the issues <laughs> you see i would i would hear something like oh, i was with a, a missionary family in papua new guinea i'd be like wow that must have been hard <laughs> mm. in, in some well yeah you'd think i mean especially if you believe british newspapers that think that people fight off crocodiles and left right and center and and in some ways missionaries do sacrifice a lot to go overseas but if they've set up a whole community that then is pretty much designed to keep white people there <laughs> so therefore they've brought western culture in 
with yeah. them, then you end up with with a mess. And um, don't get me wrong, I loved my time out there, but <laughs> and you start to realise why and what that looks like, and actually in the long term, what that might do for the gospel. And yeah, so it's it's a whole wait and and i'm talking to people in the states who are trying to unpick being black from white evangelical evangelicalism and you've got that going on at the moment and we've got a little bit of that happening in the uk what is what is white christian white english christianity and what is black english christianity how do we yeah i worry we're already divided i mean because they always say i don't know if it's true but the most divided days in the u.s is, is a sunday um you know most segregated day is is a sunday because you have you know large, you have white churches and black churches and my, you know my, my worry is that you know is that something that's going to get even worse because i think that's the thing that's so beautiful about the gospel is it brings it brings people who are diverse together under under shared shared belief but it you know uh, you know there are concerns, especially around, uh, you know, this, that is this going to, are we going to see more division? You know, cause that's obviously what we don't want, you know, because I think a lot of churches get it right. You know, a lot, you know, I've been to, I've been a, a white member of a majority black church. I've been a member of a majority white church and I've been members of mixed churches, you know, where there's uh, black Africans, Asians, Caribbean, South Americans, uh, European, you know, all over the place. So I think, you know, one of my concerns at the moment is this: this has the potential to to worsen uh, an existing problem. What do you reckon, Glenn? Do you reckon it's going to get worse? No, That's no, good. I think it's. I think it's going to get better. You know, I think the, uh, you know, um, other than stuff like rioting and looting, <laughs> I think. Um, to a large extent, the consequences of this conversation being had will be good. Yeah. I, I hope so. Yeah, I'm, I'm by, it's I'm a very summary nature. statement. <laughs> they'll be they'll be good. They'll be good. Yeah, it'll be great. <laughs> it'll be fabulous. Um, but yeah, um, I know that there are stereotypes about white Christianity and the way that it doesn't it doesn't necessarily handle these issues well. I hate to you know throw other people out under the bus but i think it's more of a problem in america than it is here and that is because um there were white churches and black churches established whereas in a place like new zealand um mm. fortunately that wasn't the case mm. uh, you know there were i mean there were some indigenous varieties of christianity that got started like over here we have the, the ratana church but generally speaking um the most diverse organizations that I've ever been a part of have been churches. Mm -hmm. And yeah. I think that's great. Uh, yeah. And, and yeah, that could just be a consequence of things being done reasonably well within the Christian faith in this part of the world, or it might just be an accident. Mm. <laughs> but I think, I think the upshot uh, of, of these, of, of these renewed conversations about uh, race and ethnicity and privilege and about what the kingdom of God should look like, uh, it's going to be positive. I think, yeah, I think I'm, I'm with you on that. I, I think this is a necessary conversation. I think what needs to be said alongside this is is those who are church leaders is, is teaching the humility to listen 
rather than react and I, that that's what i'm at least seeing on on social media is that the the knee-jerk reaction to critical theory to white privilege to language is generally done by those who have the privilege and and those who don't have that privilege are the ones that are being silent and my hope in sharing certain things on facebook is that people are allowed to speak but actually i'm not sure that's the that's where it's happening um and so somehow within churches we have to cut the noise that is seen on social media and find ways to not force but just allow people to listen in a forum where they can't speak in some ways and in zoom is useful i guess you can mute people but the allowing those with uh from the sort of minority within the church to at least just hear their experiences so that we can learn from them and not be those people that go actually what about what about this? What about that? What about all these yeah. other problems? What about these injustices? Um, mm. and, and that's, that's my frustration with this whole conversation is the number of what abouts uh, and what ifs. And, and it's like, no, that's not the conversation right now. It's acknowledging that we don't have to worry about certain things that our brothers and sisters do. And we need to hear that before we then act. And, and I think people jump into conclusions because of the noise um that's kind of where i'm at hopefully that kind of translates a bit i think you do it well what 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 do you what do you think so then it's kind of it's easier to identify ways that are unhelpful i'm trying to think on a you know an individual level what uh what do christians do you know do we just keep quiet listen um yeah because i've i've tried had some conversations with with friends um you know some of which you know, have, have have had experience, and others, you know, who say it hasn't, they haven't had, uh, they can't necessarily identify with some of those experiences. But I think, you know, of any group, there's always going to be sort of variation of, of experiences. Um, so, what 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 do we do? Is it sort of just, do you think, you know, what would be a, a helpful thing for people like ourselves to to do? Who's the question for? You, Glenn. Why don't you go first? <laughs> Gosh, your guess. Yeah. That's the difficult thing, isn't it? <laughs> it's easy to identify a problem. It isn't easy mm. to identify. It's easy to tell when someone's sick. It isn't necessarily easy to know what's going to fix them. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, so I, I guess the thing to do is to look at the examples where things have gone wrong. Uh, I mean, we've been saying that we don't know. Yeah, we've been saying that in any given instance of of violence or violence we don't know whether or not race was a factor but here's what i think how about if we were and, and this sounds i would be mindful of how this how i say this because it, in some people's ears it may sound like all lives matter but that isn't the point acknowledging that people are going to carry with them certain types of unconscious bias you know just acknowledging that because it is true how about we don't we don't use brutality against anyone. Hmm. Yeah. So that would, I mean, that, that's kind of a simple answer in some particular cases. Now, I'm not a police officer, so that's not necessarily relevant to me. But in in everyone's sphere of influence, they must carry with them certain the the responsibilities that they carry to make a difference here is going to is going to look different. Um, so and that and that's why it's 
that's why it's difficult to say what should we do because there are a trillion things to be done mm. because there are a trillion different things that we do and, mm. and, and millions of different lives that we that we lead and and the particular obligations in each case uh, are going to be different ultimately what it is going to come down to is, is practicing love but what does that look like well i can't tell you here and now what that looks like and it might look different in new zealand than it does here in the uk maybe yeah i mean the uk and new zealand i think are more, much more similar than than new zealand and the us and that's probably yeah, true that's true yeah we're we're a, we're a commonwealth nation <laughs> <laughs> yeah got that in common mm. and I'm, I'm feeling that the, the conversation's kind of trailing off a little bit um on this front and i, I think probably said quite a bit on there and just some resources that i've engaged with at least in the uk that might be helpful for viewers is um started following fairly probably a couple months back actually timely before all this sort of blew up there's a guy named ben Lindsay who's written a book called we need to talk about race and um he was actually starting to look at how covid19 has been impacting races differently um and actually um again, part of the privilege of being white, we've actually been less impacted um, by COVID, uh, it would seem, by the stats. And so he's looking into why that might be and, and what can be done about it. So if anyone's watching and needs a resource just to start off with, look up Ben Lindsay, at least in the UK. Uh, those watching in Australia and New Zealand, Glenn, do you have any resources specific to, to your side of the world? Nope. <laughs> oh, start listening to people yeah, yeah i um yeah well, that's probably a good thing to do i well no it's not because i don't have time I, you know there are only so many issues and and fields of of mm -hmm. interest and study to which you can devote yourself yeah yeah that's true do you do you not think it's worth i i yeah and we've had this conversation dan that's just brought something to mind of the issue that some people have with this whole thing is it's it almost like this language of silence is violence so everyone has to be an activist. Mm. Um, do you not think we should at least encourage some element of resourcing yourself? Because that's definitely the trend on social well, I media. Don't, I, don't, I don't know about resourcing yourself, isn't it? Mm. Here are some books you have to read. I almost always reject that. There are never books you have to read. Uh, yeah. There are conversations that you should have with good, loving, wise people who will help you. That's good. Uh, I think it, it should be something that you, that is talked about uh, in churches. You should hear it from the pulpit. You should hear it in schools. You don't need to to take home a reading list and do homework. That's a good shout. That's, like that's, that. that's helpful. Yeah, I, that that's far wiser an advice than I would give because my my solution is often uh, here are some books. And I'm actually gonna, <laughs> yeah same same. And, I, and I, we we usually finish on. Um, couple of the same questions do you, you have any more questions phil or, or? Oh, i've got loads and we only, oh, God, no, go well uh, it's tyler we're, oh, we're yeah. one, one hour 30 so we've we've, uh, we've done all right and uh, <laughs> pick one Sorry. pick one question one question oh i've got to ask it go on then you, you go <laughs> if, uh, only if i i've got one really quick one afterwards. no dan dan you go i can't no no you go you go you go go on you go let's um, do it Right, Glenn, Glenn Scrivener, the other Glenn, who's actually got us subscribers and stuff uh, when we interviewed him. Um, he said, another Glenn, Lowry and John McWater. I haven't come across that. Have a great podcast, so he recommends them. Um, so 
just <laughs> it's a bit of a pet pet of mine we could end up with another half an hour maybe dan dan i'm gonna i'm not gonna do it <laughs> uh, go on I'll, I'll tell you if it's gonna take too long all right okay so uh, as you know because you've been on my other channel i i think one of the big questions that people are asking is uh, around the topic of hell and even uh recently rebecca mclaughlin i haven't actually read the book but i've seen it's in the top uh, she said 12 of the toughest questions for Christianity is her book. And uh, one of them, the very last chapter is how can a God send someone to, how can a loving God send someone to hell? So obviously publishers still think this is a question worth answering mm. to cut a long story short, and maybe we'll lose a long, <laughs> some, some subscribers on this, but you, you and I, are, well, all three of us hold to the view that hell consumes and destroys how big of a part of evangelism apologetics how how needed is that conversation from your your perspective evangelism can largely be done without reference to hell um but but in saying that because you know um that when i talk about hell when i talk about missing out when i talk about not being saved in the end all I'm talking about is not having eternal life because that's what I think it amounts to. So maybe it can't be had <laughs> without reference to hell. It can be made without, well, yeah, it can be made without reference to the doctrine of eternal torment. Mm. Um, so, but and most, uh, people, from, most people will have that conversation without eternal torment. That's not generally a strategy. I mean, I've been through multiple alpha courses and introductions to Christianity and eternal conscious torment generally doesn't come up as a topic. Yeah, and while I have some time for those courses, I think there's a lot of good in them. It seems to me that they, that um, to a large extent, I mean, they do talk about resurrection, but the central focus on the gift of everlasting life and being saved from death, which to me is the most important thing in the world, <laughs> and how could it not be, in my opinion, mm -hmm. um, isn't talked about so much. And that's because what they would talk about in its place is so unacceptable. Uh, because what they actually believe is something that doesn't doesn't really nicely fit into into uh, a seeker friendly a seeker friendly evangelistic package, and so they stop talking about hell altogether, mm -hmm. which isn't good. Because if it's part of the gospel and if it's as central as some people maintain that it is, you should talk about it, and it should be part of evangelism. Whereas for me, um, what I believe instead of the traditional concept of hell is central to evangelism. It's you know what if this isn't this isn't all there is what if death isn't the end um and so that becomes the gospel mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. what if everlasting life is the thing what if it can happen yeah yeah i, I agree uh, and that focus on everlasting life and new creation has just blown open evangelism for me it makes it so much more clear and i don't have to start wrestling with everyone else's definition of death and, and and suddenly I've got new creation hope, this world, what you see in this life that's good, or glimpses of new creation, that's something to be held on to when everything else is turning to poop. It's yeah. not it's yeah. not gonna be, that's not it, that's not the end. Uh and death is not the end. We've got something and, and so that language is shared, but I don't have to qualify it. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And you can and you can really let you can well, not necessarily qualified, but you can really hammer it. You can really emphasize the things that you believe 
uh, and you can just use mm. the biblical language to do so. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Dan, you got another question. I was just going to say quickly, what I try and ask people is, could you, uh, I don't know if you know, maybe two or three Christians that we might not know about, people listening, who they should find a bit more about? Um. See, my reading habits have changed so much. You know, once upon a time when I was doing my master's in theology and PhD in philosophy, I would be like, oh, yeah, I've been reading this guy. You should go and pick him up. I don't read a lot of that sort of stuff these days. Um, so it's it's not really new stuff. I, mean, I, would, I would say to someone, look, if you're, if you're new to Christian philosophy, pick up God, Freedom and Evil by Alvin Plantinga. It's dated, but it's a really good read. <laughs> uh, that's the kind of thing I might say. Um, so the sorts of conversations that I tend to follow now are not in the literature because I've become so jaded by academia. Mm. <laughs> um, so it'll, it'll, it'll more likely be, oh, I had this really good conversation on Twitter or I met this guy at church and we, we conversed about this subject and we're going to do it again. Yeah, or, yeah, that's, maybe maybe that's, they don't even have to be Christian thinkers, just, just, just someone that people listening haven't heard of you think is valuable to haven't know, heard read, of. listen, <laughs> read or listen their, 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 their stuff. Um, well, okay. Um, no, this he actually is a Christian thinker. Edward Fraser, who is a Catholic philosopher uh, in in somewhere in the United States. I'm not sure where. I really like him. Um, actually, I requested him and and got him, actually, as one of my external markers for my PhD. And he liked my work, so that makes him even That's better. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, if, you're, if you're not familiar with Brian Davies, um, he's also another Catholic philosopher. See, I'm not Catholic. I would never be Catholic, but I have great admiration for the, for the Catholic intellectual tradition. Brian Davies on his book, I think it's called The Reality of Evil and the Existence of God or something very similar to that. It's been a little while since I read it. One of the best, because you know, I'm, I'm hard to impress. Um, you know, I, I'm a, I get bored easily and I read a book. I think, oh, this isn't interesting. I'll put it down. His book on, on evil and the existence of God is absolutely gripping. It's fantastic. It's um, worth worth your time and i know that a lot of people who are into christian philosophy or those who move in the apologetic circles anyway are um well they're they're evangelical protestants and they might not read that sort of thing read brian davies he's worth your time yeah i can i can second brian davies he's probably written the best introduction to philosophy of religion as well Hmm. Uh, he's got very good i think that's the brian davies i think he's written an introduction oh that will will be the same one here yeah he's uh, an excellent one yeah, no, that's, that's a good shout. Thank you. Nice. Well, I think that's a fairly natural way to uh, conclude our, our evening. We managed an hour and 33. So um, Glenn Scrivener wins on the longest podcast so far. But uh... <laughs> you're, you're second, though. There's, a, the, the, yeah. oh, really? there's two Glens Gosh. in the top three. That's true. Oh, yeah, my you're, word. You're, you're doing well. Uh, is there anything else that you, you'd like to say before we, we sign off, Glenn? Are you, um, anything from this conversation that stands out as a as a pithy last um, comment? Yeah, just don't react too quickly. When you hear someone uh, raising concerns about race, don't assume too much about them. You know, I'm I'm a conservative, analytically minded Protestant Christian who has no time for progressive variants of the faith and i'm telling you that racism matters yep that's a good that's, that's, that's good. a good good way to end i think i can't say anything more pithy than that really <laughs> <laughs>
Dan, Dan, have you got anything else to say? No, no, just that uh, really, really enjoy talking to you, Glenn. I've been a, uh, sort of talking to my wife earlier. I think I've been following your blog and podcast for probably 10 years. So it's, uh, it's nice oh, wow. to get to, to have a chat yeah. with you. I think... Yeah, my- uh, I think my peak was some time ago. <laughs> yeah. I was going to ask, how, how do we get you to do more podcasts? Because uh, I, I used to... Well, I've... I'm just so busy. I mean, I, I'm a student again, and it's got nothing to do with, with philosophy or theology. I mean, I suppose I could just integrate what I'm, what I'm doing now and into, into podcasts. But, you know, and I'm, I'm building guitars, and that's occupying quite a bit of time. I've actually started another podcast, uh, but it's completely unrelated to anything we've, we've talked about here. It's called Night Stories. And it's just stories to listen to at night before you go to bed. <laughs> uh, so you can listen to that if you want. Yeah, give it give it a whirl. The other thing we 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 should get you we need to get you to do a jingle maybe for our. Uh, you're very yeah. good at the, the yeah, you blog jingle. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, at some point I make music too. So yeah, there you go. Maybe well, we'll be in contact for that, and we can get you to. Nice. Yeah, well, you've got the um, new Rethinking Hell shorts that you're, I noticed your voice was on, on one of them recently. Yeah, so you've been doing. Yeah, it was. It's, um, it was an old recording too. They obviously dug it up and said, let's use this. All right. <laughs> Fair enough. So people can find you on rightreason.org and articles kind of trickling on there. You've, if you haven't ever come across Dr. Glenn Peebles, then check out his podcast and, and all the stuff from the past and if uh, you google something like glenn peebles is stupid you'll find something (laughs) (laughs) i might do that just to see what comes up yeah all right uh thank you so much for joining us and uh maybe we'll do it again sometime and um maybe spend a little bit more time on annihilationism as it's a pet project of mine but anyway uh just enjoy how you think and and what your uh, thoughts are on these big topics. And I really appreciate you spending an hour and a half of your time with us. Lovely. Cool. On that note, thank you for those of you out there that did share an hour and a half of your time with us. Uh, we would greatly appreciate it if you'd like to subscribe and like and share. Hopefully you found the conversation helpful. And uh, if you've got anything feedback-wise to add, well, put it in the comments and we'll get to it at some point, hopefully. Um, It's been a pleasure and we'll see you all in a week's time with Andy Bannister. That's coming up too. So exciting times. See you later. Are you not entertained? Thank you for listening to the critical witness podcast if you enjoyed what you heard then please like subscribe share we're on all your major social media apart from instagram at the moment but please do get in touch we'd like to hear what you thought and if you'd like to support the show find us on patreon.com 